Welcome to the Dining on a Dime Food Radio Show with food author Kevin Wilson, chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock, giving you the most informative, up-to-date culinary tips, news, and interviews that you can find. Now, let's get the show started. Welcome, everyone, to Dining on a Dime. For our listeners around the world via the podcast, we're going to start the show by discussing desserts. I have a lot of fun facts about desserts. And then for our listeners on WWDB Talk Radio, Drive Time Tuesday for you, our legendary guest today is pastry chef Robert Bennett, uh, who is the longest tenured chef at the legendary Lebec Finn. He has a huge announcement uh, stick by the radio and listen to the announcement. Then we're going to end the episode with Max from Manitoni Stillworks. Lots of people love Manitoni Stillworks. All right, let's start out with desserts for our listeners around the world. Uh, the guy who invented Reese Cups named Reese Cups after himself. How egotistical is that? <laughs> well, it's not egotistical because he actually took a lot of time. Um, curating the peanut butter that went into the middle of the Reese's Cups. And his whole entire family actually, you know, was involved in that, too. And our uh, co-host, Chef uh, Gene Blum, is a uh, culinary historian. Chef, did you know that cheesecake dates back to the Roman times? Yes, it was a slightly different version that we have now. Uh, it was not the same creamy type of cheesecake. It was made more with a, a tough type of curd but yes it goes back you know many 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 years i did not know that now when you say that it was made with a different type of curd um did this at all involve the lemon that's curd like lemon curd at all like because i know that it, lemon goes into it well it wasn't a lemon curd per se that we're accustomed to seeing today in a lot of desserts what it was back then it was more you know, a cheese curd, and it was more of a savory. Oh, okay. So it's different. All right. Let's go on a couple more fun facts. The word cookies comes from a Dutch word meaning little cakes. Uh, in early America, rhubarb was the most popular pie and not apple. What do you think, Chef? Rhubarb? I love – I grow rhubarb. I love rhubarb pie. You know what number two is? No, I'd love to know. So peach. Peach is also the, the very big common pie in America. What's your favorite pie, Mamras? Do you uh, bake pies? Um, I do bake pies. I'm actually weird about pies because I the crust makes it for me. Um, okay. If the crust isn't good, I just won't eat the pie. So let's throw this out there then. Okay. For our Philadelphia people and people who can get them elsewhere. Right. What is the best tasty cake pie? Oh, I I like the Boston cream. Amorous? I have I <laughs> I'm gonna get so much hate mail for this, but I'm actually not a fan of the the tasty pies. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! Ooh. The the emails have gone. I off. know. I feel them already. Okay. Uh the emails are going off the hook. How could you not love the tasty cake French apple pie? I don't know how you can't love that. All right, let's move on because I don't want to get hate mail. Uh. How about Ben and Jerry's was originally supposed to be a bagel company until they found out that the equipment was too expensive. So think about that. Ben and Jerry's, the legendary ice cream, uh, was originally supposed to be a bagel company until they found out the equipment was too expensive. 
and they just couldn't uh, maintain. Two things about Ben and Jerry's that are really cool. One, they study the Penn State. They study the Penn State Creamery Ice Cream Store. Okay. So that's a very cool thing. Two, across the street from their offices and factory, they have a graveyard dedicated to all the – there's gravestones for all the different flavors that they no longer make. Okay, now this is why our show, uh, for our listeners on Talk Radio WWDB, our listeners around the world, we had 34 states listen to our uh, Cinco de Mayo show. Uh, This is why you love our show. Our chef is a culinary historian. All I did, we did not rehearse the show. I just tossed out Ben and Jerry's, and he just gave you some amazing facts. Now, chef and amorous, uh, the first known version of s'mores... I was, no, back, chef. But I'm just saying, I'm loving the fact that I'm tossing out these things and he's no, giving the history. I, no, it's it's the fact that I was like all authoritative <laughs> it was like and amorous. The first known version of s'mores dates back to 1927. In the Girl Scout handbook, they were called s'mores. So think, let's talk about that again because that's pretty interesting. The first known use of the word s'mores was in 1927 Girl Scout Handbook, and they were called Some Moors, and they was shortened to S'mores. What do you know about the Girl Scout cookies, Chef? That women well, well are... I know a lot about Girl Scout cookies because it's one of my favorite things in the whole world. And yep. Listen, anybody wants to buy me gifts, send me Girl Scout cookies. It's a great thing. <laughs> but I don't know a lot about S'mores, and that was a great bit of information. Yes. Except that you can have S'mores, and you can also take a little shot glass, and throw in some crumbled graham cracker in the bottom, a little fudge topping, nice. and a little marshmallow topping, and I have s'mores in a glass. Nice. I forget what that dessert is called, but... Um, s'mores in a glass. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a... Uh, I. This is going to kill me. There's a specific dessert that it's like a, a pudding, basically, in the in the glass, but it's a, a tiered... Like, Did I say anything about pudding? No. Okay, I said chocolate fudge. And marshmallow topping. And, and do crumble. you guys know that the meaning of the word dessert it is a French word meaning clear of the table? Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So all these people eating desserts for years. Nobody knew what it was named after. It's called. It's from a French word uh, meaning clear the table. Now, I want to get the chef's input real quick. Oh, no, no, no. I want to interrupt for one second. Yeah, I remembered. I want to make a bondini out of that. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get at. Different item. <laughs> and uh, here is Change my mind. Once again, Chef Gene Blum is a culinary historian. Chef, ice cream in some form or another dates back to 200 BC. Did you know that? Yes, I mean, when you think about it, you know, dairy in some form has existed a long time. And, right. and you know, in different parts of the world where you get a colder climate, it's easier to produce. You put, you know, in, in all intents and purposes, you put cream outside, it's going to freeze, and you're going to get ice cream in a version. And then people have taken to the fact that you can add certain types of flavorings and sweets and things like that. Sugar was not one of them. Uh, okay. Sugar was very rare for a long time. I mean, sugar was used in medicine. It was not uh, a food out of there for a long time. So things like licorice and other things like right. that are more common, but yes. How about that? That's fascinating. And uh, how about, let's go into some stats. Did you know that Boston... Massachusetts has the most donut shops per person. <laughs> Who would have thought? Also, the most colleges, so they might yes. be related. That might be <laughs> might related. Be relationship to that, yes. 
And how about what's your uh, thoughts on Baked Alaska? Anyone familiar with Baked Alaska? Just so you guys know, Baked Alaska was actually created in New York City and has nothing to do with Alaska. At the Waldorf Astoria, I believe, is the rumor. I don't know that to be true, but I believe that that is the rumor. I'm not 100% sure on that, (laughs) um, but I believe that is correct. And I got something Amaris would enjoy. Amaris, did you know that in 2005... A fortune cookie actually predicted the Powerball number, and 110 people won the Powerball because it was in their fortune cookie. I what do you think about that? Can can I have a fortune cookie? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, it's pretty interesting. There, there have people have won the lottery for all different types of reasons. What you know, if if it's something where the fortune cookie, the numbers in the back just so coincidentally happened to line up with the lottery. That's, you are some lucky people. <laughs> that is lucky. Um, before we move on, I want to introduce the show to uh, our YouTube uh, watchers. Uh, if you go to YouTube and you look up Food and Beverage Information Station, Food and Beverage Information Station, I already have dozens of videos on our YouTube channel. And the chef, uh, our chef Gene Blum, is a culinary historian, He'll love a show on our YouTube channel called Foodie Squared, and that's a show I did from home about a year and a half ago where I took four food items and I gave you the culinary history, how they were invented, how they came to be. That is on YouTube, Food and Beverage Information Station, and from this point forward, we're going to put the first segment of every show on our YouTube channel, so you'll have a video podcast on our YouTube channel. Now, our YouTube uh, watchers have been looking at Chef Jean for eight minutes. Let's focus on Amherst Pollock. She is a food photojournalist. Uh, before we move on, you want to uh, make the big announcement? Let's let the chef make the big announcement. Uh, because we are now on two radio stations and the success of the show is off the charts, uh, to make it easier for uh, sponsors, we have changed the name of our show. So starting next week, you're not going to have Dining on a Dime uh, because, uh, unfortunately, people associate it with, you know, not the most expensive food, and that's hard to get radio sponsors. Chef, introduce our listeners to our new name. Starting next week, you can find our show as what? So starting next week, you will find us as Food, Farms, and Chefs. Three things that we talk about often. That is right. We love to talk about food. We love to talk about the origin of it all beginning at the farm, whether it be dairy, meat, produce, whatever. And, of course, just like today, we love to talk about chefs. If the name wasn't too long, we'd add beverages too because we love to drink. <laughs> exactly. We definitely and, – and no matter what. Your origins of where you get everything, even including beverages, comes from where? It comes from a farm of some sort. And, and that is a business decision. Uh, dining on a dime, when I was trying to get radio sponsors, because we're on two radio stations. We're on an every single podcast platform in the universe. Uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Amazon Music. We do w- very well on Amazon. You can go home and say, Alexa, play uh, you know, Dining on a Dime. Let's introduce our legendary guest. So at this time, it is absolutely a wonderful honor to introduce one of not only Philadelphia's finest pastry chefs, but I think one of the finest pastry chefs in America, as well as an incredible gentleman, humanitarian, and just all-around good person who goes out of their way to help anyone. So I'd love to introduce and welcome Robert Bennett, pastry chef. Robert, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm blushing. (laughs) 
Not at all. You you know, your career is, you know, a textbook in success. So in, you know, 1987, and well, I'll, you know, talk about your education and, and what you did prior to that. But in 1987, you are the executive pastry chef and a consultant at Jumbie Bay Resort in Antigua, West Indies. And you yeah. get a phone or you get an opportunity to come to Philadelphia to work yeah. at the legendary Lebec Finn, but still come to Philadelphia from, you know, Antigua, West Indies. How <laughs> difficult was that decision? Well, it was absolute. It is paradise down there. And I, I love the people I worked with. But um, after a while, you, you, it, it gets a little, you, you, you're not, you don't have any peers to, to um, work with. And it's, um, I really was, uh, I was only 21 years old and I said, I, I really want more out of my career. And when George Perrier calls you, you, you don't say no. That is very true. It's very hard to say no to George in any aspect. And I've lived that and I know you have, but so you come on to Philadelphia, you go to what is essentially one of the best French restaurants in America, certainly the best restaurant in the city of Philadelphia at that time. Having been through Lebec and done a tour and, and you know that, you didn't have what was considered a luxury pastry kitchen. It was a small area, if, you know, from no. what I recall. I mean, you, you know, you didn't have the the surroundings that you see so many celebrity chefs have, but you produced amazing, amazing, amazing desserts. Um, yeah, it was it was a wonderful spot we uh, we had. And uh, Chef Perrier, of course, after my first 13 years there, he built me a beautiful uh, laboratory, a million-dollar laboratory up on the third floor of uh, the building. And uh, he just gave me everything I wanted. Had to be an experience. You know, people who don't know Lebec Finn or the stories, it, it was an amazing restaurant. And you can go for lunch, and it was you know, I'm going to date myself because I go back to when it was $35, I think, for lunch for three <laughs> courses. But then, it, you know, it came up a little higher. But one of the a courses little. was the dessert cart. Yeah. And you can get some of everything on that dessert cart. And I will confess, I have done that. <laughs> I was just going to ask. I'm like, I didn't get to have the experience at Lebec Finn. I, I sadly didn't. So I would love to hear about some of these desserts that you had created. Sure. Well, um, when I first arrived uh, to Lebec, there were two other pastry chefs. Um, there was a Gerard Bilbo and um, Olivier Verne, um, both French. Uh, Gerard was on his way out. He was going to go down to the Bourse and open up um, Harlow's with his uh, wife at that time. And Olivier um, wasn't legal. So I kind of leapfrogged, and immediately I was executive pastry chef at Lebec. It was, it was just kind of thrown in my lap. But uh, Chef Perrier was just so kind to me. He was like a father to me all, all 14 years I was there. And um, so the dessert cart, um, here it is, you know, May of 1987, and um, they were doing a lot of mousses. There was, you know, mango mousse, passion fruit mousse, and, and a lot of the customers just weren't really going for all of it. I mean, it was beautiful and colorful, but um, Olivier and um, Gerard asked me, you know, both like right off the boat from France, they uh, they said, what is coffee cake? Said, we're, we're looking for a recipe and we keep seeing it, but we don't see coffee in it. So I finally explained it to them. And just by happenstance, a couple of nights before, my wife had made me this delicious cinnamon pecan coffee cake. It was to die for. 
So I said, all right, I'll make it for you. So I made two of them. I put one on the, the table for us to taste and then one on the, the rack uh, to, to, you know, for us later. I'll be damned. A waiter came down, grabbed that coffee cake, went upstairs and put it on the cart. And he came <laughs> back minutes later with crumbs. I was horrified. I was like, oh, my God. So here I had to go tell Chef Perrier, you know, in this, this traditional classical French restaurant that, you know, a basic, basic American dessert like that went out. <laughs> and he kind of laughed. He said, Bobby, if that's what the customers want, that, that's what you give them. And I kind of had an epiphany. I was like, oh, my God. That's basically, the only people that can afford to eat at Lebec are older people with a lot of money or you know, once in a lifetime, people will, will come in there for an anniversary or to get engaged. But, you know, I, you know, admittedly, there were people that I, I couldn't afford to eat there. So that started the uh, the kind of revolution. And um, so it kind of kicked away some of the moose cakes and we started bringing in um, some lighter desserts. Um, everything from poached fruits to, um, you know, fruit tarts. Um, of course, the coffee cake, which actually was on the menu for like 25 years, it until the day Lebec closed, um, the coffee cake stayed on that pastry cart. Um, the uh, sorbets, we had a sorbet cart, so that the diners could choose um, either three sorbets or three gelatos. Um, we had the Il Flotant, on the, the floating island in the creme anglaise, fresh fruit, um, lots of puff pastry items. So we made our own Napoleons from our own scratch puff pastry. Um, PTVA, which is the puff pastry with the almond cream. Um, some uh, nut items. Uh, so we the the marjolaine, which was from Chef Perrier's, um, I believe it was, um, I'm drawing a blank, Le Pyramid. I think he apprenticed there many years Correct. ago. Correct, he did. That, that's... And so the Le marjolaine was from there. And... Um, I believe it was Fernand Point was the, the chef there. So that was one of his mentors. Um, and then the succès, which was a very light, uh, crispy almond meringue with a praline buttercream. Um, we made all of our own pralines. Um, oh, goodness. It's been so long. Um, Charlotte's. We made Charlotte Russe, Charlotte Royale. Um, and just me and my, my little crew. Uh, it was just myself and like three other people, and uh, throughout the years, then, then um, you know, the cart got bigger and bigger, and Chef Perrier used to have a tray that um, the, the one waiter, uh, Bernard, um, would take out, and um, we'd have some twills, some chocolates, some little petit fours, and if the people didn't want any, then they would just shoo him away, otherwise they would indulge, and then Chef had the... Uh, the, the forethought to just give it to him anyway. So he got all these beautiful solid silver trays, a little tray for petty fours, a little tray for chocolates, and every single table got them no matter what they wanted them or, or not. So you can just uh, imagine the fear um, that I had when now all of a sudden we were a, a chocolate factory too and a petty four factory because uh, it was a lot of petty fours, a lot of chocolates. So, okay, but you uh, – I know enough to know that you studied or, or spent two years with Coco Barry learning chocolate. Yes. And yes. you, in my opinion, make some of the best chocolates I've ever had. And when you, you left Lebec Finn and started Meal Pastries, your chocolate was to die for. So, I, I you know, yes, whatever that fear was, you overcame that and rose above because <laughs> your chocolates and my the one product in the entire world that I despise 
is a chocolate fountain. I despise oh. them, whatever. <laughs> but I have been to an event, one of the scantastic events at Toto's house, and you had a chocolate fountain with a single source chocolate. Yep. You had, you know, your homemade marshmallow, and you had some sorbets and all there too. I would have bathed in that. That was so delicious. Yep. Your your chocolate was just amazing. So whatever that fear was, you overcame. Because part of your <laughs> education was two years at Cocoa Berry, which had to be an amazing education. Oh, and my then, goodness. And then yes. coming out of doing a culinary institute where, you know, other great chefs like Max Hansen from Max Hansen Catering you know, mm-hmm. had also gone. Yep. You yep. left Lebec so, um, Finn. You, yes. op- you decided to open up your own business, which was, you know, obviously a, another – fearful moment, but you open up um, meal pastries in several yep. different locations. What was the inspiration um, behind that? Um, once again, um, actually when we built the laboratory up on the third floor of Lebec, um, the kitchen designer and the union, um, which of course you can't do anything in the city without the union coming in, um, they weren't uh, conversing well enough and it ended up being like baking out of a dollhouse. It was... Uh, I didn't have a walk-in refrigerator. It was a tiny little stoop-in. Um, the um, air conditioning was, was all shot in the beginning. He had all these offices in the back of the building that he had to move out down to another building because we had to expand the kitchen even after construction was done uh, for the chocolate and, um, and and storage of pastry. And it just I would just felt so defeated and um just felt like i'd really let him down and um so it just stressed me out so much that uh i had i um resigned and um he forgave me i mean i just did a dinner with him two weeks ago and he's you know i still love him like a father and he you know he still treats me like a son so i uh, had this opportunity <clears throat> to uh, have me patisserie and i didn't want to do it in philadelphia because I didn't want to, um, you know, come right back in, into my own neighborhood uh, with Chef Perrier and insult him. And so just on a handshake, this one gentleman, um, Marshall Weinerman, uh, you know, a great man. Uh, he's a realtor, the entrepreneur. He built me uh, my factory in Cherry Hill, and that was two, $2.1 million it cost. Everything from the Coma Blast Freezer uh, to my Savi Guasso chocolate and rubbing machine, my climate-controlled chocolate room, um, a 2,000-square-foot um, kitchen that was perfectly lit with granite tables and uh, Guillaume ovens and Pavaillet ovens and everything, everything I could dream of. And so that was in April of, goodness sake, 2002 yep. that we opened. And then... Um, he insisted on opening up in Center City. So, um, oh goodness, the gentleman, his, his name escapes me. He used to come to Lebec all the time. He, um, he owned the building right there on 17th Street. He said, um, and this was, of course, right after 9-11. So there was a luggage store, which completely went under because no one was traveling. And he said, I have a, you know, a little 600-square-foot space here. I said, I need at least 1,000. He called me the next day. He said, I got a 1,000. So they busted through the wall and accommodated me. So I said, how can I say no? So we opened up that on uh, December 16th of 2003. And um, so then uh, we were off and running. We did very well. 
and um, I was there for several years. And then, of course, um, my partner and I just had uh, seeing things. Uh, you know, we weren't eye to eye, um, so I left on on good terms. And um, then uh, did a lot of traveling for Barry Calibo. So I went to Paris. I was the U.S. judge of the World Chocolate Masters, and then um, just traveled around, and then came on to Classic Cake uh, that that fall. Well, and Classic Cake, you have been at all this time going forward, and you know, I, I remember the New the Philadelphia Inquirer article <clears throat> that said, you know, Robert Bennett may have made the last cookie you just had, <laughs> and it's true because your production was enormous. But I know you well enough, and I and I listen to what you're saying here. Is you are so hands-on and so involved. You know, you're not the type of person who just okay, the line's running. I'm going to take the day off. That's not who you no. are. You know, everything you produce has your name on it and your brand, <laughs> and you take very great pride in that. Tell us a little bit about Classic Cake. So we are um, Classic Cake, which has been around for oh goodness, over 30 years. It was started by uh, Carol Newlander. She was the, um, a housewife of a, a rabbi, um, uh, Mr. Newlander, of course. And uh, she was baking out of her, her house, and her friend said, Oh, my God, you're, you're so good. You should open up your own bakery. And so I think her first one was in Audubon. I'm not 100%. I think it was in Audubon. And then... Um, eventually opened up uh, more spots. I think she was up to six spots, six different locations, and the uh, big factory was on Springdale Road in Cherry Hill. So then she was tragically murdered um, under the direction of her, her husband, who's now rotting in jail. And so then the company went into disrepair, different ownerships, and um, we came in, I guess it was November of 2006, and bought it out of bankruptcy. They were just about to shutter their doors. So we came in exactly one week before uh, Thanksgiving. Talk about uh, baptism by fire. We had six tractor-trailer trucks loaded up because they had no ingredients. They had they couldn't afford any ingredients. They were losing their customers by the day. And we went in there and just dug our heels in deep and rescued what customers we could and then eventually um, shut down that location and built a brand new uh, store in um, in on Evesham Road, which unfortunately burned down last March. Uh, but we got a good ten years out of that, and um, so now we're have a little retail shop in that same center, but it's kind of like treated as a pop-up. Uh, the, the kind people at the Short Hills Deli are letting us use their their front space. So we just had a very successful Mother's Day there, and and of course here. Our factory, we have we moved here um, at the same time that we shut down that factory on Springdale Road, and we're here in Port Richmond, just across the Betsy Ross Bridge. And so we have 40,000 square feet, and we also have a cheesecake production here. And then I have a climate-controlled room where all of the classic cake pastries are made and my chocolates, my gelato machine, everything right here within, within reach so I can, I can see everything going on and, and jump in myself. I'm sitting here in a chocolate-stained jacket as I'm talking to you. Because <laughs> after this interview, I'm going to get back up into the kitchen. So if I'm correct in saying that you have some exciting things happening in the future. Yes. 
So after 15 and a half years, I um, have resigned from Classic Cake. Um, I've been offered and accepted the position of executive pastry chef for the Union League's newest uh, property, Liberty Hill. It's in Lafayette Hills. And, of course, a lot of people know who the Union League is, and that's, that executive chef there is Marty Hammond, a wonderful guy. I've known him for so many years, and they have such a good culture. And um, things I, they're so good to me here at Classic Cake, but it's just going in a different direction where we're doing mass production um, and basically just doing things for the, the freezer. And, and I miss the, the retail. I miss uh, being with the customers and uh, you know, since our Center City store has been closed since uh, last March, it's it's just very difficult, very stressful. But um, the wholesale business is just incredible, so we're blessed in that way. Um, and I start uh, next Monday. In fact, this this Friday will be my last official day at Classic. But I'm still going to come in um, a couple of days a week and actually use this kitchen here while my kitchen up there is being built and still help to oversee. I'll still be on the board of directors for Classic, and um, I think he called me the executive pastry chef emeritus. Is that what it's, Emer- that's how it's pronounced? No. Oh, oh. Yes. Emeritus, yes. Emeritus, thank you. My ego. I am so excited about your announcement. <laughs> One, in the fact that I do a lot of uh, corporate team-building events, at, well, I did them at Chubb, and obviously it'll be Liberty Hill and things like that. Yep. But I'm also, Monday through Friday, right around the corner from you in Chestnut Hill is, you know, oh. at the college. So, you know, I, w- I will be right in that area on a regular basis. So it's an absolute wonderful. Happy. Yes, I'm very happy to hear this. Come visit. And, and I, you can bet on it, and I certainly <laughs> will be. So the other side of Robert Bennett, if anybody's listening carefully, we get the humanitarian, the gentleman that you are. You know, you have a lot of great causes that you have been behind. Children is one of them. Uh, yeah. We did a charity. You and I were involved with Ed Marcus and Toto and, and George and many other people for many years called Stop Child Abuse Now, SCAN. Yes. Which was the forerunner to all the great restaurant events that take place in the city of Philadelphia. And nothing against any other restaurant event in the city of Philadelphia, but no one does it like SCAN. No, that was the absolute, that was the gold standard. That was the best. I loved it. And it was always like the last Friday of April. That is correct. correct. And I loved it. Lebec Finn, while we had other desserts, Lebec Finn (laughs) pretty much did the dessert room every year. And it was table after table after table of (laughs) Lebec Finn. We used to have to put up security guards to keep people out of there early. So it was an absolutely (laughs) wonderful event. Um, and I know that you had to put so much work into that. You took so much pride in that. When we, the event, even the year that it was canceled, the Wednesday prior to the event, and the event was a Friday every year. If you remember the year yeah. that it was canceled, the Wednesday before, because the building was de, uh, declared unsafe, and we had to put yeah. tents up and move it into tents and everything like that. You had so much pride. George had so much pride. So you know, we know your love of that. But you're also very big into animal welfare, which is a wonderful oh. thing. So tell us yeah. a little bit about all that. Um, well, Paul's, uh, I do that every year, or, or basically anything they, they wanted. I have two beagles myself. Um, yes, one is a purebred beagle, and then the other, we just we just got a new puppy a few months ago. She's a half beagle, half Aussie uh, shepherd, and um, they're just a, such a joy. And uh, I've and Bailey, my uh, my first beagle, he's he's 
first dog I've ever had. Uh, I had cats my whole life, but finally got a dog. And um, so, you know, I love the uh, idea of the animal welfare. Uh, we do, um, I have all these chocolate molds for um, dog paws, and I make dog treats, and um, we just have a great time. So, I, yeah, basically anything for children, anything for animals, um, any charity that comes along, I, I don't say no. And I know that education is another one, and I speak to that is that when I was teaching high school culinary arts, we would bring students down to Lebec Finn, we would go to events, we ran across you, and I had a student by the name of Isaac who was a high school student that approached yeah. you about interning at Lebec Finn, and they had never had a high school pastry in, intern at Lebec Finn before, and probably had to work a little bit on George for that one, but you took Isaac <laughs> under your wing, and, you know, successful as it is, Isaac left the pastry business for a little bit, but he is now back in the pastry business down in, uh, he's back in Florida. And, you know, the last I spoke to him, your influence that those days in Lebec Finn mattered so much to him. And the fact that you took him under your wing to do that is, is a really, really big thing. So, you know, kudos to your, your love of passing on the skill. You certainly are a, you know, classic chef in that aspect that you want to pass on the trade. Uh, it's Thank just you. Really, really something. Uh, just a little weird human, you know, a little weird side of something else that I recently discovered. You are like a world-class darts player. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so I um, yeah, I I can I can throw some darts. I uh, I um, actually, it, it's funny that the night I I remember the very night that I fell in love with darts. It was December the tenth of. Uh, 1997, I was going to supposed to be presenting a, a, a gingerbread house to the winner of the auction in the middle of, uh, I think it was the Nutcracker, and I went over there to present, and they kept delaying and delaying, and I was, I was going to go on during intermission, and then they delayed and delayed, and finally I said, you know what, I got VIPs in the dining room, I got to go back, you, you give it to the auction winner. I went back to the restaurant, everyone's fine, VIPs were fine, I went around the corner for a quick beer. And one of our waiters was there playing darts. And I said, oh, this is cool. And I picked it up and just fell in love with it. And that Christmas, my, my kids got me a, a dartboard for Christmas. And uh, I've been playing avidly ever since. Uh, so in place of numbers, do you have, like, chocolate truffles and <laughs> <laughs> <that's> your targets? <laughs> uh, we, we, we have played for, for dart uh, for uh, chocolates before. I'll, I'll bring some to the bar, some uh, our leftovers or factory seconds. Can you tell me where you play? <laughs> I um, <laughs> actually um, we're hopefully we're going to get the team back together because this COVID has shut us down. We haven't played for well over a year, but um, it's called Cavanaugh's in Headhouse Square. Oh sure. And before oh, yeah. that it was Dark before that it was Dark Horse, and before that it was uh, Dickens Inn. So I've I've always had my allegiance to that team because uh, you know Dickens Inn was like the place. We have eight dartboards in that place. Wow. So. That's, well, that's my home away from home. And you are a little bit more than just a kind of barroom dart player. You have some ranking, as, <laughs> as I understand, as well? I've, I've won the, um, the all-star shoot twice uh, in my lifetime, uh, Division Four and then Division Two, And then um, I've been proud to be on a Division One team, which we've, we've won it all. And Division One is that's as high as you can get uh, before you go pro. But um, 
it's fun. I, I, I took it on as a stress release, and so it's just it's nice to just escape. And um, I have a beautiful uh, um, board set up down in my bar uh, in my basement, and I pick them up still every once in a while. But hopefully we'll pick them up again this fall. So now, are you going to have a dartboard to play in the back of your kitchen at your new location? <laughs> you know what? It's funny you say that because I actually have one here at Classic, but I haven't. Um, but I I refuse to hang it up because I don't want to uh, be distracted. So it's it's I've I've made a pact that it's only during um, when I'm completely off work that you get to play. So. Yes. So, Robert, exactly. of all the wonderful things that you have done from pastry in the city of Philadelphia and, and around, what are one or two things that have stood out to you, whether it was a special event, a special meal, something like that, that you created that just to this day stands out as utterly amazing? I I still think um, when I was teaching at New England Culinary Institute, I had just returned um, – from uh, New Orleans, I was the pastry chef at Arnaud's on Bourbon Street, and Mr. Casbarian, God bless him, offered to build me a pastry shop on Bourbon Street, but I said, no, you know, this is my calling. i I, I got to go back. So I went back to Necky, and um, I taught first-year pastry, and then um, that fall, the uh, executive pastry chef left, and I jumped up into that spot, and the very next month, in January of 1985, we get the call from the White House that they wanted us to do the inaugural cake for President Reagan. <laughs> so that was put into my lap. So I was President Reagan's guest pastry chef for his second inauguration and made a cake for 44,000 people and hired an architect. He did the blueprints of the U.S. Capitol, and I built it um, out of pastillage. And um, even to this day, uh, it's, it's, it's now back in my possession. My wife, Dawn, and I went up to Vermont. It was under glass in um, City Hall at the, in Montpelier, which is where our school was. And they said, uh, I said, hey, I made that. Um, they said, well, we're, we're so you know proud of it, but um, you're welcome to have it back because we're going to make room for other stuff. So we drove up and picked it up, and it's sitting here in my decorating room. Oh, that's cool. I have seen <laughs> pictures of that cake, and yes, it was absolutely an amazing display. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the work that went into it, and... I've been around some great pastry, uh, you know, chefs in my career. And my brother, who was very uh, involved at the Willard Hotel in D.C., every year they would do giant gingerbread houses at the Willard and things like that. You know, so, and he had been there. He was there. He retired last year. He was their only original employee left. So he'd been there all those years, gone through all that and all the years of being there. But, you know, their gingerbread houses, their displays every year at Christmas, not even close to what that cake was in the pictures of it. <laughs> wow. So, you know, one down. You. so, if you know, obviously you're you're going on to the Union League um, and doing that. If you had one bit of advice to offer to young culinarians or people interested in getting into the pastry world, what would that bit of advice be? Well, it, it, these are different times now, Chef, because you know. Back at Lebec, we could get free help all the time, and um, you know now it, it's it's tough to make a living. But I, I do highly recommend uh, get a formal education, do go to school because that's where it's more concentrated. But absolutely find a mentor, um, someone you respect. Um, just work as hard as you can for them, learn as much as you can, 
and then just start to build your own repertoire from there. Uh, it's just hard work. There's no escaping it. There's no other way around it. And I'm finding I'm, I'm learning something new every single day, and I, I pass it on to my staff. And uh, But hard work, you, it, it, it pays off. It pays off immensely. I, I never dreamt I would... Uh, you know, be doing what I'm I'm doing today, and uh, and actually being able to make a living at it. So, Chef, as we close out today, people who want to uh, follow Robert Bennett or find out more about Robert Bennett, how do they do that? Um. Well, I don't really. I'm on Facebook, but most of my pictures are of my dogs, so um, I, I don't do. <laughs> Which Instagram. I love, by the way. Thank you. I, I do Thank love you. that. I'm, I'm a dog person too, and you're you're you know yes. <clears throat> I, I, I'm kind of a private person, but um, and now I'm going into a private club, so I don't really know what to say. I don't do the. Uh, they have a website or any social media that you know of. Well, the union, I'm still the union I'm still learning. The, yes. They yeah. do. They definitely do. They have a whole whole team that takes care of that. Yes. Front, sorry, I don't know the handle. That's okay. But, no, it's all right. Uh, a quick side note: I have been um, commissioned. By um, it's called the Great Courses Plus, which is a streaming video on-demand membership. It's absolutely, um, I, I used it be, a lot during COVID. Ah, I'm going to be filming a pilot for Mastering oh. the Art of Professional Baking, hopefully within the next month. And then if they, I get the green light, then I'm going to film, uh, tape 24 separate episodes. Wow, um, we're going to get really in depth into um, the professional baking, and so. It's kind of like um, Alton Brown, who, yes. you know, loved that guy, but he never demoed anything, but he was all science. Right. And then, um, but I'll actually be demoing it while, while talking about it, because, uh, you know, my father was a chemist, so I just, I just love the chemistry that, that goes on, and, um, and that hopefully we'll get the green light. Well, that's fabulous. Robert, thank you for taking time to be with us today. You thank are you. such a gentleman, a chef, just a, a great human being. I have nothing but the utmost respect for you. Um, please give my best to your lovely wife. Um, and you. hopefully we'll our pass across one day and maybe, you know, I can grab Toto and we'll come up and, and you know, visit you up at, up at the club. <laughs> I would so. love, love to have you two come visit. I would love that. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Chef. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care. You too. Oh, that was fantastic. Amorous Pollock, introduce your fantastic guest. Hi. um, I would like to introduce Max Pfeffer. He is the uh, Director of Operations for Manitani Stillworks. He's been with them for about uh, since 2013. So, Max, why don't you say hello to our listeners? Hi. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. uh having me on the show today thank you for joining us um now so where is manitani and what is manitani all about uh so manitani is actually a lena lenape word it means the place we meet the drink uh it is also the name of the river that runs through pop sound and pop sound is where we are located and where we do all our production uh, we do have some locations uh, in Philadelphia as well, uh, but you know, basically at Pop Sound, we're there to make whiskey. Uh, we we make craft whiskey, a uh, very s- small batch, you know, about seven eight hundred bottles at a time, uh, and we are trying to do something different 
we're not trying to make the same whiskey that every that people have made before. Trying to, you know, coming from the craft beer industry, uh, we're trying to uh, expand the idea of what whiskey can be. And I saw that because you definitely, you know, you ferment some your whiskey in wine barrels. You have a port. You have smoke that's infused into it, so you get that nice. Um, smooth but like peaty taste with the smoke and you have things like cherries that you fermented in uh why don't you talk a little bit about some of the interesting things that you do for during the process the flavor profiles that we can that we can taste within some of the whiskeys that are are available so what we're really known for is our four grain whiskey uh, so we actually don't make bourbon, scotch, Irish, Canadian, or rye whiskey. We make something different. So it's uh, malt, wheat, oats, and rye. Those are the four grains. Uh, and it's not like any other whiskey out there. It's not something crazy. It's not something uh, uh, out in left field. It's not quinoa whiskey. Uh, but it is, you know, it takes some ideas from the kind of scotch side of the spectrum and puts an American spin on it. So scotch is typically malt whiskey uh, in used barrels. So we're doing uh, heavy malt whiskey, but adding some wheat, oats, and rye, uh, which is going to add some more of the uh, spiciness that you get out of American whiskey. And we're also typically aging in uh, new American oak. Uh, But then we do some other fun things as well, uh, experiment with a couple of other things. So we've used some uh, peated malt, uh, where the malt is smoked with peat and gives you that uh, classic kind of iodine, uh, smoky character that you get out of scotch. Uh, but it certainly doesn't uh, taste like scotch. It's its own, it's its own thing. It is a truly phenomenal product. If anybody, and it, it's, if I'm correct, it's a little hard to get right now because, well, this, I have the seventh anniversary. So I had some over the weekend. It is a sensational product. It is just the perfect complement between a whiskey and a scotch. It's just really full of flavor. It's just something truly special. It's different. Um, if you taste it, you know, you're going to want more. Um, scotches could be all over the board depending on where you go with the amount of peatiness and, and, and you know, the flavor profile. I found yours to be, I'm now I'm a bourbon guy, so I'm going to lean towards bourbons. I found yours to be an absolutely wonderful drink, and I probably had one too many in the process, but it was that good. <laughs> yeah, I like to think of it as a gateway whiskey for uh, both scotch and bourbon drinkers. It's kind of right in between. So if you're a scotch drinker and you want to get more into American whiskey, it's a great place to start. And if you're a bourbon drinker and you're looking to get more into the scotch side of things, it's also a great place to start. Uh, absolutely a, a great analogy there. Yes, I, I absolutely, thinking about that and, and the flavors that I had, absolutely wonderful you know, combination of the two and get you going either way. I would like to tease Gene because uh, even though I haven't shared the rum, he hasn't shared that seven-year uh, mm-hmm. bottle with me either. So, you know, there's a battle of uh, whiskey wills. <laughs> um, do you, and, and speaking of the seven-year seven anniversary whiskey, why don't you talk a little bit about that and what it means to you that you, you know, have gotten to this point? 
Uh, so when you're a startup craft distillery, one of the hardest things about it is that you don't have aged whiskey. Uh, you know, on, on day one, we had clear whiskey. It all comes out of the still white. So to get to a point where, you know, our seventh anniversary whiskey is a 100% peat malt, peat smoked malt whiskey that's been aged for about four and a half years in a couple different barrels. And to be able to have, get to the point where we can actually have some whiskey that is four years or older uh, makes a big difference. You know, we're starting to get more on a even playing field with those other, dis, you know, the, the big name distilleries. You know, they still have a uh, hundred years of uh, experience and uh, infrastructure they're working with. But, you know, we have flavor on our side. We have the ability to, you know, take some risks that they're not willing to. Uh, but, you know, being able to, having been here for seven, seven years, you know, it's still, still uh, crazy to me that people want to buy whiskey that we make. Uh, you know, every, every bottle that someone buys, it still, uh, still means something. You know, we touch every single bottle multiple times. It's such a, uh, intense, uh, kind of, uh, close process that it still, still means something to us. And just to be able to be in this still seven years later, uh, you know, it's great that we had such great support from uh, all of our customers. And I think it's important for your people listening to understand that Manitani is not just producing whiskeys. If I'm correct, you have two vodkas, you have three different whiskeys besides your anniversary repeated ones and such. You have a... Um, white whiskey with, for all intents and purposes, moonshine. I believe you have two rums and two gins as well, um, I, and I may be missing something in there. That's an extraordinary list of products to be coming from a small distillery. Kudos. How do you manage all that? I mean, that's a, a really big production schedule. Uh, it can be a lot sometimes. Uh, you know, Essentially, we have um, six core products, uh, our white whiskey, our gin, our American gin, our gold rum, our four grain whiskey, uh, our vodka, and our honey whiskey, which you can all find at the, the fine wine and good spirits stores. Uh, and then after that, we uh, like to have fun with you know some smaller projects. So it might just be a barrel here, a barrel there. So everything else is kind of always rotating. Uh, you know, if you you can always go, uh, we can actually mail bottles straight to you. So if you go on our website now and you see what we have, and then uh, a couple months later come back, you know, there'll, there'll be a different offering. So we kind of like to do it in small batches and uh, just so we can try different things and see what, what comes out next. And meaning which, what do you have coming out next? Let's see. What do we have next? Uh, we have uh, we've been playing around with some tequila barrels. Uh, so we put some gin as well as some whiskey in tequila barrels, and we probably midsummer uh, we're looking to release uh, at least one or two of those products, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, you get. You know, without you get a fair amount of the tequila on it, um, and it really uh, meets like right right in between. So when you're tasting it for like from the whiskey standpoint, you get that tequila note, but you get that whiskey note, 
and it's really hard to see where one begins and one ends. So they, they really come together nicely. I'm sure it will, and I would love to try it. Um, now, why don't you talk a little bit of, about Piper's prod, project and uh, before we find out how, how to reach you and how to um, find Manitani on social media? Sure. So Piper is uh, my dog. Uh, she's a little pity who's about seven years old now. Um, and when I first got the job at the distillery, I realized that I could probably take a dog to work. So my wife immediately started looking for a dog and we went to a bunch of different rescues and then we found Piper. Uh, so Piper's a rescue and she kind of is our spirit animal at the distillery. Uh, when you walk in, she'll probably bark at you, but she is as sweet as can be. Uh, so we wanted to be able to give back to the community. So uh, with our vodka, we have the Piper's Project, which we donate a portion of the proceeds from all our vodka sales to the Piper Project. And this year, we've paired with Brandywine Valley SPCA. And so a- any bottle of vodka that you buy, you can it will help, uh, help uh, get some dogs some homes. And then specifically this year, uh, we have what's called our Piper's Pals. So we've partnered with the Brandywine Valley to help their dogs that have the hardest time finding homes, put an extra spotlight on them uh, using the Piper's Project. So if you do adopt one of those dogs, so right now Dartrix is available uh, and looking for a home, we'll give you a bottle of vodka, a tour at the distillery, and a nice little uh, pack of goodies as well to take home with you. That sounds wonderful. Now, in order to do that, how will we find you on social media? Uh, so we do Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, and honestly, I think it's usually at Manitani SW. Can't remember it exactly. Shouldn't be too hard to find. You can go to our website at www.manitanistillworks.com. And is there a number that would, people can reach you in order to make reservations for tours? Uh, we do that all online. Okay. Uh, so you should be able to, if you go to our website, you should be able to make a, a reservation there. Just as we close out here, Max, um, how many locations do you have in Philadelphia for people to purchase your products and where are they? Uh, so we do have a location at, uh, 16th and, or 12th and 11th and past Junk, right at the singing fountain. Uh, and that's a, location where you can get bottles and cocktails. Uh, we also have a spot in the Renning Terminal Market, and we typically also operate a location in Suburban Station as well, but that has been closed due to COVID. All right. Thank you for joining us, Thank Max. Um, and stay tuned for our we're, tags. We're going to give our tags now. Uh, food, farms, and chefs on all social media platforms Philly Restaurant Reviews with an S to get all the information with our new changes. Chef, what's your tags? You can find me at Gene Blum or IBFoodie2 across social media, or you can email me directly if you have questions concerning anything food and beverage related at IBFoodie2 at Yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E-2 at Yahoo.com. You can find me on across most social media at 
ARPolicus, or you can uh, directly email me at A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S at gmail.com if you would like to be a guest on our show. Okay, and we'll see everyone next week with a brand new name. 